Hey, thanks, Dave, for the opportunity. Great songs in the worship set this morning. They really speak to uh, our topic today, and I uh, really appreciate the team. In fact, yesterday we had a get-together at our place for all the worship arts team, and uh, Phil, the guitar player, he's like, hey, Maury, you mind if I bring a bouncy house for the kids? I was like, bouncy house? Yeah, bring the bouncy house, because my kids are in college now. We haven't had little kid toys for, like, years, so we got nothing. So all the kids were standing bored out of their minds in my living room until the bouncy house showed up. So we got it set up in the backyard, and Linda was like, well, now they're going to be too hot because it's 100 degrees. So she got the water hose out and was spraying down the kids. And we kind of had a little problem with the bigger kids kind of trampling the little kids in the bouncy house. So then we had to have a referee out there to time out the older kids. All right, you're out. We're going to bring the little kids in now. And, you know, Steve on the drums back there, a pretty big guy, and Chris, you know, we really had a hard time getting those two out of the bouncy house. We just... But we finally did and had a great, great time together. So today I'm going to talk about a difficult topic. It's not fun, but we've got to talk about it. It's kind of like talking about the heavier things like suicide and sexual assault and divorce and adultery and kind of the darker side of, of our souls. But I have, I have hope for us and for this subject um, because I believe, number one, that the Lord is our healer. Amen. And number two, that the church is a hospital. The church has lots of responsibility. We're we're tasked with sharing the good news, going forth among all the nations, making disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But before we can ever task, we have to be healed. I remember I had a brother say to me once, he was in a wheelchair. He said, emotionally, I'm in a wheelchair. People are asking me to get up and run a marathon, but I'm still in a wheelchair. So what's he saying? The cry of his soul is, I need healing. I need soul care. So then I can run the marathon. I want to run the marathon, but I can't run the marathon yet. And sometimes if we live life too shallow, we even create an expectation on ourselves to run the marathon, but we're still in the wheelchair and we just don't know it. So Jesus comes to the man on the mat and says, take up your mat and walk. He comes to the man in the wheelchair and says, rise up and run. But he does that acknowledging their point of need. And so we need to acknowledge our needs, that sometimes we bring needs, we bring brokenness, we bring trauma, we bring wounding to the church. And the worst thing we can do as a church is ignore all that, because that's where people are at. So fortunately, Grace Bible Church does not ignore all that. Grace Bible Church recognizes our humanity, that we all come with needs, that we bring brokenness to the church, and that sometimes we need to talk about it. So today we're going to talk about combat stress, combat trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder. A couple of disclaimers. Number one, you do not have to go into combat to have post-traumatic stress disorder. You can be in a car accident, a plane crash, a boating accident on Stillhouse Hollow Lake and have combat, or sorry, have uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. You can also, uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of folks with, who've experienced sexual abuse or sexual assault carry that secretly all of their lives because of the shameful nature of the experience. But they need healing, and we need to have a context where we can safely, graciously disclose what's going on in our souls so that we can find hope and healing. So those are my assumptions. I'm not going to show you any graphic, scary uh, pictures today. I'm not going to tell you any horrible stories because I don't want to re-traumatize people. 
I'm going to show a few pictures just of combat experience in general, life in general in a combat zone. But my sermon is going to focus on combat stress, combat trauma, because of my experiences in combat. So our text for today is Psalm 144. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, you have a pew Bible in front of you, you want to read along, it's page 524. Some people hate when I give the page number. You know, it's like, let me find it. I want to practice my Bible skills. It's Psalm 144 if you want to find it on your own. Psalms in the middle of the book. If you open your Bible up right in the middle, you should be close. Psalm 144. So I'm going to break this reading into three parts. There are several psalms which address uh, the soldiering experience. Psalm 91 is referred to as the soldier psalm. A lot of soldiers have that printed on handkerchiefs or note cards or books and carry it downrange with them. Um, Psalm 23, the shepherd psalm, very powerful for warriors through the ages. And this is another one of those psalms, Psalm 144, which speaks to the warrior's experience. Psalm 144, written by a warrior. In fact, David is referenced in this uh, psalm. David was a warrior of Israel. David was a... a uh, a king of Israel, and David was recognized for both his valor and for his human failings. So I think that David's a figure that many warriors can relate to, and this psalm also speaks to us. A psalm of David, Psalm 144, part one. Training. Training for war. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I I take refuge, who subdues people under me. So the army and all the military services train. We train and we train and we train. You know what they're doing at Fort Hood this week? They're training. You know what they're doing at North Fort Hood week? uh, Even on the weekends and all the time, they're training. Combat units train. And what are they trained to do? They train to fight and win the nation's wars. That's army doctrine. The army trains to fight and win. We don't train to lose. We don't train for stalemates. We don't train for retrograde operations. We train to win. That's what we train to do today. So we train for war. I can remember uh, my first deployment uh, being with my soldiers at Fort Carson, Colorado, out on the weapons ranges. Fires, watch your lanes. And there was zero on their weapons. And I was walking up and down the lanes behind the soldiers reading Psalm 144. Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my, my hands for war and my fingers for battle. And you could just hear the weapons firing. And there's this energy, there's almost this excitement in going to war, which is a bit naive because we don't, when, we're, when young soldiers are going to war, they don't realize the cost of war on them emotionally, the cost of war on the soul. So I remember that experience and reflecting on Psalm 144 and how God trains us for war. But we train to fight and to win. Part two begins in verse three. And this is facing our mortality. You'll hear the psalmist, he faced his mortality. O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. In his days are a passing shadow. So every soldier that goes forward into a combat theater faces his or her mortality. We recognize, wow, you know what? Uh, this might be the day. The, my time might come. Uh, I might die. 
And so soldiers are smart and motivated usually to deal with their mortality. And so when we were at, uh, when we were in, in Virginia at camp, uh, sorry, in Kuwait at Camp Virginia, the soldiers were just coming to chapel like you wouldn't believe. Um, I don't know, I think Dave mentioned it, I'm an army chaplain, and I train army chaplains at North Fort Hood that are mobilized and going to war. Army National Guard chaplains, U.S. Army Reserve chaplains, and from time to time, even, even regular army chaplains come with their units to North Fort Hood for training. So we train them and get them ready for the combat experience. But I remember being in Kuwait at Camp Virginia, and the chapels were packed as the surge was moving forward across the berm, moving forward into the fight uh, early in, uh, in 2003 and early 2004. And um, it was a remarkable experience. I'll show you a couple of pictures. But what was exciting about it to me was the energy that was there for people to deal with their mortality. And the way they were dealing with it was they were coming for prayer. They were coming for communion. Some of them were coming for baptism. Some were coming to worship God, to exercise their, their right uh, to, to uh, express their faith. Uh, it was a very powerful experience. And uh, at some point, we all have to face our mortality, that our days are numbered. Our time is limited. Uh, man is given so many years on this earth. And even as I grow older, I appreciate that so much more. It seems like my days are, are getting shorter. My memories of life are fading, uh, and I'm more appreciative as, as I grow older for the number of years that God gives us on this earth. Don't get me wrong. I pray that I have many, many more. And I anticipate and I take care of myself so that I, my target age is 90. That's what I'm going for, 90. If I get more than 90, it's great. I remember when my grandfather turned 70, he called me up and said, Maurice, I made it. I made it to 70. Three score and ten, that's what the Bible says. Anybody know the King James reference? It says three score and ten. A man is given. Three score is three times 20 is 60 plus 10 is 70. So that's how he got to 70. That's what's given a man. 70 years on this earth and everything else is gravy. Everything else is extra. Well, I want 20 more years of gravy is what I told my grandfather. I want a little extra. So that's facing our mortality. Part three, combat operations. Listen to the imagery in beginning in verse 5 and just picture uh, what the psalmist is describing. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. So I think here that the psalmist is describing combat operations against an enemy. Rescue me from a cruel sword. Rescue me from my enemies. Deliver me from the mountains when they smoke. Deliver me from the fiery arrows. He's describing firefights. He's describing mortar attacks. He's describing Al-Qaeda decapitating prisoners that they take, hostages that they take, whether they be civilians or whatever. These are combat 
operations uh, which are difficult to survive, difficult to endure. It's not like just uh, punching a clock and going to work every day. Sustained combat operations take its toll on everybody, whether you're on the FOB all the time or whether you're in the TOC or whether you're maneuver units out in firefights every day. Everybody is, is impacted at some level. And then part four. Part four is why we fight. Part four, four is the reason that we go to war. Uh, there is a history of just warfare called just ad bellum and jus in bellum. I'm not going to go into that today. But this is the end result of why we fight. Verse 12. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown. Our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. So to me, this speaks of the, the bounty and the beauty of America, the freedom and the fullness and the richness that we enjoy here. Um, that's why we fight. So that our, as, the text, as the text says, so that our cattle are full with young. If you remember scenes from Saving Private Ryan as they're walking through the fields on their rescue mission to find Private Ryan, there's dead cattle, bloated cattle all around them just about every scene. So warfare takes its toll on the livestock. It bangs up the earth. It tears up the trees. Uh, It interrupts everything about life, and it takes life. But when we look at this passage in verse 12 and following, we see the blessings of peace that our, our livestock are, are full with calves and the fields and the granaries are full and our sons and our daughters are growing up to discover their purpose for life. That's why we fight. But when we fight, there is a cost to war. Next slide, please. And that is expressed in terms of combat trauma. So one of the things that I've, spend a lot of time working with soldiers on is, is combat trauma, combat stress, PTSD. I describe it, I don't have my coffee cup this morning, but it's like your coffee cup, you know, your thermos with the lid on it. When there's some in there, and you don't know how much is in there, you kind of shake it and you're kind of estimating how much is in my thermos. That's kind of what combat stress is like. It's kind of rattling around inside the soldier. He doesn't really know how much is there, but there's some there. Just it matters, it's in varying degrees. Every soul is unique. Every soul is individual. There are no carbon copies. And what that means is that combat stress impacts each soul differently and uniquely. So there's no magic answer for each individual. In fact, I I, want to define PTSD as rather than a psychological disorder, I see it as a wound of the soul. And so I talk about it in terms of soul care. And that's how I'm going to talk about it this morning. Some lessons learned from combat trauma. As I said, combat trauma impacts all soldiers who deploy in combat. Um, It's a suffering of the soul, and it can lead to PTSD. It doesn't necessarily have to go that direction. Not every soldier has PTSD. So please don't ask a soldier, do you have PTSD? That's like asking a soldier, did you kill anybody when you were downrange? 
That's the last question they want to answer. So what soldiers need are loving, supportive questions and affirmations. Welcome home. We're glad you made it. We love you. We care about you. We're here to support you. We're a part of your go team. We're a part of your support network. That's what soldiers need to hear. So that's what, how we can be supportive as a community as we, we receive soldiers uh, into the church. I also believe that combat trauma, it's a wound, and you can heal from it. Yesterday I was tearing down my fence. I, actually, a couple of days. I was a, it's been a week-long project, and I'm ripping down this old fence, and I was using bare hands. I should have put gloves on. Turn to the person next to you and say, you should have wore gloves. Go ahead and do that real quick. You should wear your eyewear. You should wear all that stuff, right? I wasn't wearing my gloves. So I'm ripping down this fence and getting all manly with it and showing the fence who's boss. And all of a sudden, it snapped back at me with a nail and caught me right in the middle of my palm. Ouch. So it bled, and I, of course, I thought about Jesus, you know, being wounded in the palms and how, how insignificant my sufferings are compared to his. But it hurt, and it caused a wound. And you can, if you want to see me afterwards, you, it's on my left hand, so you don't have to shake it. Uh, but it's, uh, there's a wound there. And you know what? It's amazing. It's healing. Given the proper conditions, the Lord created the human body to heal itself. I'm going to say that again. It's an important insight. Given the proper conditions, the human body can heal itself. The same is true of PTSD. Given the proper conditions, the soul can be healed from combat trauma, combat stress, and PTSD. There's one caveat, though. You have to want to be healed. You have to want it. I've noticed a trend among some of our soldiers. For whatever reason, when they finally are impacted by their, their experience downrange, they come home and they finally ad- admit, I'm having some struggles. In fact, I'm having a lot of struggles. In fact, I'm really messed up. They exalt their PTSD to the place where no one can touch it. No one can understand it. It's greater than anything they've ever experienced in their life, which is true. But they also say it's even greater than God. God doesn't care. God is not involved and God cannot touch it or heal it. So that's why I say you have to want to heal. You have to want it. You have to recognize what we were singing about this morning, that the Lord is a fortress. That His love and His power are greater than anything in our lives. Anything we experience. Any trauma. That He is aware of our trauma and our suffering. The circumstances that contributed to our trauma. And that He also has the power and the love and the care to nurture us and to heal us. When we recognize that, that God is greater. When God is greater than our combat stress, our combat trauma, and our PTSD then we can begin to heal. But as long as we idolize our PTSD and lift it up greater than anything else, which is a very existential expression, it's the soul saying, this is what matters. This is how I'm struggling. This is how I'm suffering. But it's existential. It's only from the subjective perspective. In other words, it has to be contextualized in the framework of the universe. That... The universe is greater than our suffering, and God is the master of the universe. So He is greater than our suffering, and most importantly, He loves you where you are, and He will bring you from where you are to where you can be, where you want to be, where you're dreaming of being. 
So that's a little, those are some lessons learned about combat trauma. Let's look at the history of PTSD. In 1678, the Swiss called it nostalgia, which is translated homesick. Soldiers were homesick on the battlefield. The Spanish call it estar roto, translated to be broken. Civil War Americans called it soldier's heart or fainting heart. Soldiers in World War I called it shell shock. The other night, Linda and I were on a date to uh, Chick-fil-A. Big spender, big roller, Chick-fil-A. Getting those specials, you know. It was a great time. You can go anywhere and have a good time with your wife. Amen? Amen. Praise God. We celebrated our 30th anniversary in June. Uh, I love her. Where are you? There you are, sweetie. Um, so we're at Chick-fil-A. We're eating our specials, our salads. A couple of dudes sitting ne- down next to us, and I noticed they were wearing their, their biker jackets. Probably belonged to a club because I'm the, I haven't heard of this club, and maybe somebody's here from the club and can enlighten me afterwards. But the name of their club was shell-shocked. I thought that was interesting. I thought, well, these guys are probably Army veterans, and uh, this is their club, and it's not uncommon to see soldiers expressing their freedom by getting a motorcycle and going out for a ride. That's kind of the American dream, right, for um, uh, getting out and experiencing their freedom with their battle buddies, going out riding. I've done the same thing. It's a tremendous part of of our healing. But I thought that name was interesting, shell-shocked, because that actually comes from World War I. When soldiers were shell-shocked, it resulted in combat stress, combat fatigue, combat trauma, PTSD. They just didn't know what it was. They didn't know how to treat it. They didn't know how to deal with it. Then in World War II, soldiers in World War II and even Korea called it combat fatigue. Then we developed the DSM-4 and the DSM-5, which in psychiatry is a manual for diagnosing uh, mental and psychological disorders. And in the DSM-4 and the DSM-5, PTSD is classified as a psychological disorder, uh, particularly of uh, nervousness, anxiety. But Dr. Ed Tick has a different take on it. He wrote a book called War and the Soul, and I tend to lean towards Dr. Ed Tick, who says that PTSD is an injury to the soul, that it's primarily about the soul. Now, psyche... Psychiatry, psyche, is soul and mind. There's a connection there. So they're not disconnected. But it's what, what Ed Tick does is he brings the dimension of soul into the discussion. So if you want to check the book and reference it, it's Barnes & Nobles online anywhere. Dr. Ed Tick, War and the Soul. Great book for understanding combat trauma. combat. He works primarily with Vietnam veterans. A lot of experience there. I think 30-plus years of experience. Uh, and understands it as uh, war and the soul. Uh, I want to go to another picture here, our first picture, actually. This is Major Dick Winters. You may have seen him popularized in the film or the series of films, Band of Brothers. In the movie, he starts out as a lieutenant, gets promoted to captain, leads a company of soldiers into Omaha Beach and up... uh, They fight a lot of fights. And all the way up to Eagle's Nest, Hitler's Eagle's Nest in Germany. And uh, just a great warrior, great leader, great army officer, um, great uh, man. 
He died in 2011. He's one of my heroes. He wrote a book uh, before he died called Beyond Band of Brothers. Highly recommend it. It tells the rest of the story, what happened to their lives during the war and after the war. And um, he tells a story which is really, really powerful. Uh, He got out of the Army. He thought he was out of the Army after the war. He was recalled to active duty for Korea. And uh, it turned out that they needed him to train. So he was training officers to lead soldiers in the fight in Korea. And uh, I thought about my connection with him because that's what I do. I train chaplains and chaplain assistants uh, to go downrange. And I'm a major. He's a major. So there's a lot of connections there with, uh, with him. But I don't in any way pretend to have the valor that he, he uh, demonstrated. But just a great role model for me. And uh, when I look at how he recovered from the war, he finally got out in 1951. He was discharged from the Army, finally. And the one thing that he wanted to do was go home to Pennsylvania And he spent a year building a cabin stone by stone. In in his book, he says, I finally found the peace and the rest that I promised myself on that first day on D-Day. In other words, he made it through D-Day, and at the end of that day, he promised himself, one day, I'm going to build myself a cabin, and I'm going to find some peace, and I'm going to find some rest. And it took him a year to build the cabin. So my point in sharing that story, and his point, is that was his recovery program. That was his reintegration program. That was his readjustment program. Uh, He put himself out in the woods, and stone by stone, by hand, he crafted that cabin. His family, he married, and he actually raised his family in that cabin. Uh, So it wasn't just some kind of little flunky uh, weekend cabin experiment. Uh, He crafted a a very fine cabin, and his family occupied it, raised his family in that cabin. So, uh, warriors today uh, call it combat stress, PTSD. The, The beautiful thing about what's changed in America is America supports its warriors more than any other time in our history. Somehow Americans have separated support for the war and support for the warrior. Although some argue you can never separate those two. Some people say that you can. The point is that there is more support uh, for America's warriors than there ever has been before. And America refers to its wounded as wounded warriors with respect, uh, with uh, a sense of responsibility to care for our warriors who have paid so much, who have sacrificed so much. Let's go on to symptoms. PTSD. What are the symptoms of PTSD? I'm going to classify, there's four basic groups, four different, four basic expressions of PTSD. Number one is reliving the event, and that's through nightmares, uh, flashbacks, triggers. Um, when I came home from my first deployment, I woke up in the middle of the night one night. I was on the floor, uh, and my wife was standing over me. She had been trained. through. She went through some reintegration training, which was great. She was standing over me, gently touching me, reassuring me I was home, I was safe, and that what I was hearing was different than what I thought it was. In my sleep, apparently, I was reliving uh, a firefight and hearing the sounds of the 50 cal 
because the gunner sits right above me in the Humvee. And so that 50 cal is just barking when we're in the fight. And uh, I was hearing that in my dream. And what it was, actually, what triggered it was we lived near an elementary school. And the garbage truck had come to pick up the big metal dumpster. You know, it's got those arms, picks it up, and then it dumps it. And it shakes it a couple of times. And so when it was shaking that dumpster, it was going, to do, to do, to do, to do. Which my mind, in its stressed state, interpreted as, in a dream state, a firefight. And I had a reaction. But Linda was there to lovingly calm me, reassure me. She didn't say, what's wrong with you? What are you doing on the floor? Why don't you get up? You need help. Those are all the worst things you can say to a soldier. She did all the right things, and I thank you for that. The second expression is avoidance. Avoiding crowds. Driving in the middle of the road. Why do they drive in the middle of the road? Because IEDs, the number one killer of soldiers, are buried usually on the sides of the road. Why? Because it's gravel and sand. They get out there with a shovel. They can dig a hole easier on the side of the road than they can through the asphalt, right? Now, they get tricky. They put it in the curbs and in carts and donkeys and dogs and all kinds of different things that, that, to try to trick you. But for the most part, they're on roadsides. That's why they're nicknamed roadside bombs. So that's why they drive down the middle of the road. And you'll sometimes see a soldier just going right down the middle of the road. So you know why. And we appreciate our law enforcement understanding that and, and, and helping soldiers. Hey, pulling you over just to remind you you're driving in the middle of the road. I see you're a veteran. I probably understand why you're driving in the middle of the road. But to be safe for everybody else, don't drive in the middle of the road. Move over a little bit and stay on your side. So we appreciate that because I've driven down the middle of the road. Number three, negative changes in beliefs and feelings. So when you come home and you realize you don't have any feelings at all, you're just kind of numb, or you don't have any feelings towards anybody, you're in a hard place. I remember I came home and my daughter climbed up in my lap one day, and she said, Daddy, how come you don't cry anymore? I was so battle-hardened. Why don't you cry anymore? And I'm a chaplain. And I said, I don't know, honey. I don't know why I don't cry. I just, I don't know. And she said, well, until you can cry, I'll cry for you. Isn't that powerful? You know, she entered my suffering. She was there with me. You know, and she was only 13 years old when she said that to me. Number four, hyperarousal. Changes in sleep. Not sleeping all night. Changes in diet. Not eating good, not eating at all, losing a lot of weight, changes in motivation. I'm not motivated. My hua is gone. Hypervigilance, buying more guns and buying more guns and buying more guns. Don't get me wrong. I believe in the Second Amendment, right, to bear arms. Uh, But I remember one time one of my soldiers, he's like, hey, chaplain, come here. I want to show you my new weapon. Okay, I'll go see your new weapon. Go behind his car. He opens the trunk. Wall-to-wall weapons. Lots of guns in that trunk, soldier. Yeah, isn't it great, chaplain? Isn't that awesome? Yeah, wow, that's a lot of guns. Yeah, it's a lot of guns, isn't it? Yeah. Wow, why do you feel like you need so many guns? I don't know. My Second Amendment right. Yeah, it's your right, but why do you need so many? I don't know. Why don't you think about that a little bit, and let's talk about it. So these are some of the symptoms uh, You'll also notice, I think, and this is very common to soldiers, 
when they enter a room, they survey the room for threats. They look for all the exits. They'll stand in the corners and survey, and they just feel safer in a corner. You see that in a restaurant. They'll sit in the corner, look at survey in the room, just making sure that they have visibility on what's going on. So these are experiences that are, are common to soldiers and uh, can, can be some symptoms of PTSD. But that's not the end of the story. But I want to tell you a little bit of my story. So we'll go through these, fly through these pictures, and I think I'm going to do the changing here now. Okay, so this is my first deployment. Uh, this is my chaplain assistant and myself, Staff Sergeant Roy Wolkowski, on top of a rooftop in uh, FOB Spiker, which is near Tikrit, Iraq, Saddam's hometown. And this is at the, actually at the end of our tour. When we were pretty battle-hardened. We got extended to 15 months. So we were one of those units there for a long time. So this is uh, about March of, February, March of 05. Uh, this is earlier when we were in Kuwait moving forward. Uh, one of my more memorable moments uh, with my soldiers uh, getting on our knees, taking a knee in the desert for prayer. Uh, so I'm there with my soldiers. Uh, I've got the soft boonie cap on, I think. And uh, we're, we're praying and uh, seeking the Lord's help for the fight as we move forward. Soldiers, as I mentioned, want to get baptized. So this is a hasty field baptism. You see the bottled water on the, uh, on the T-barrier there, uh, or the J-barrier. Uh, and uh, we're using that water in a little bowl to baptize this soldier. And his whole platoon came for that baptism. It's powerful. It's awesome. That's the C-17 that we were on when we flew over. Um, it just shows that not all units fly over in commercial airplanes. We were on a C-17. You know what I remember about that C-17? It was cold. And those steel plates on the floor, if there's any airmen here, you probably know what I'm talking about. They get real cold at 30,000 feet or however high up we were. But it was a long flight, but we were pretty wired up, pretty pumped up to go to Kuwait. And uh, that's uh, just our, our frame of reference. Uh, this is an Easter service, sunrise service, Easter of 2004, again at FOB Spiker. And uh, this is what chaplains do, this is what soldiers do on, on special holidays. They gather to worship, pray, have communion. So it's what, you'll notice we're all full battle rattle, and we're out in the middle of an f- open field. But that's the way the general wanted it. He, we're going to worship out, we're going to get out there and we're going to worship. So that's what we were doing. Uh, this is FOB Warhorse near Bakuba, Iraq. Our Charlie company was out there, and this guitar has actually survived multiple deployments. That guitar deserves an award, and I still have that guitar. It's in my office. I, I took, it's my worst guitar. I took it thinking it would get blown up or damaged, and it survived everything. Uh, there we are singing some praise songs, Easter Sunday. Uh, soldiers gathered around. It's a plyboard table with the camo net overhead. Um, we're having communion. Uh, this is a pre, this is what we call a uh, pre-combat patrol brief, and there's prayer as a part of it. The commander standing next to me uh, of the patrol is, uh, he gives the brief, and the last thing he says is chaplain, and then the chaplain leads the soldiers in prayer, and then the last thing we do together as a group is say the Lord's Prayer. Lots of soldiers saying the Lord's Prayer as they move out. And at first you'll see them, you know, kind of, some will be standing around, "Ah, I don't really want to pray. Not really the praying type. But you encounter a couple of IEDs on the road, you become the praying type. And they participate and and engage, and everybody's saying the Lord's Prayer. Uh, This is the security team that, commander security team that I rolled around with for a year. 
And these, these guys kept us safe and did a great, great job. One day, we were in five attacks, and we, we made it through. The whole team made it through. Our mission was uh, Operation Trailblazer, Task Force Trailblazer, route clearance, which means going out and looking for IEDs. So to do that, at first, we were literally walking in the ditches with the little mine detectors. Well, I guess we found one the hard way. They gave us a specialized equipment. It's safer. It's more reliable. That's the buffalo, the meerkat, and the husky. It's a part of a package that we would use for each of our patrols to go out and find IEDs. We found them the easy way, and we found them the hard way. The easy way was finding them before they detonate. The hard way was finding them upon detonation. So there's a picture of one going off. Uh, South African 155 round makes a pretty big boom. So I just I show, you that, show you that not to scare you, but just to give you some context for our mission. Uh, that's what it does to the, uh, the vehicles. So you can imagine what it does to the humans inside the vehicles. Amazingly, the soldier survived this particular incident. However, he, he suffered from mild traumatic brain injury, something that's important for us to pay attention to today. This is a Humvee, what a Humvee looks like after an IED detonation. Some are much, we have, I have, my goal in sharing the pictures was not to show you how horrible it can be, but just to give you a, a taste. That's uh, a medevac carrying a soldier off the field. And then inevitably, whenever you're in combat operations, you're at war, you're facing mortality, soldiers die. So this is what uh, we call a ramp ceremony. Where at LSA Anaconda, we were sending soldiers' remains home to mom and dad. And then we would follow on with what's called the memorial ceremony. And memorial ceremonies are intended to honor the soldier, comfort the grieving soldiers, and reconstitute the troops for mission. So that's the purpose. And we had several of these. And after 38, I hit my limit, my personal limit of what I could handle and started experiencing my own combat stress, my own combat trauma, my own sense of overwhelming grief at the loss of so many of our soldiers. Uh, so uh, when I came home, and that was the best part about it was coming home because uh, there we are, I am at the airport coming home to my family because I got to come home to my beautiful, brave, strong daughters, uh, get, get to watch them grow up and uh, just so proud of them, of the love and the support they gave me and continue to give me. And, of course, my lovely, beautiful wife of 30 years and how courageous she has been in all my deployments. And that, that's, I remember when I was getting help at Camp Atterbury, they said, well, we can keep you here and we can put you on a bunch of meds and in 30 days we'll reevaluate you and we'll probably extend you another 30 days and then we'll do another 30 days. And it just seemed like, oh, my gosh. You know, I told the doc, I said, I just want to go home and be with my family that loves me. Can I do that? Yeah, you can do that. So I went home to my family that loves me, but she also made me promise that I would go continue the counseling. And so I continued the counseling, and a counselor named Penny helped me so much, contextualize my trauma and my grief and put it in perspective so that I could heal and recover. So remember the thought I gave you earlier. Given the proper conditions, the human soul can recover from combat trauma, given the proper conditions. And for me, those conditions are faith, hope, and love. 
When you have faith, when you have hope, and when you're experiencing love of a family and a, a community of faith, it makes all the difference. Uh, so those are my pictures I wanted to share with you today. And just want to identify some coping strategies or six what we call resiliency factors in dealing with trauma and stress. Number one is an active coping style. And basically this means that you've learned through experiences in life to successfully overcome life's challenges, trials, and difficulties. Now, I'm going to give you a scripture for each one of these. In James chapter 1, James says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, I've always heard this preached about persecution. That's about the Christians who are being persecuted in the first century. But it says trials of many kinds. There are many kinds of trials in life. And one of the trials is the trauma of combat stress. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Number two, resiliency factor. Physical exercise. Exercise builds physical and emotional hardness. It lifts mood and improves memory. Exercise appears to increase elasticity in the brain. Because really what trauma is about, there's chemical pathways in the brain that have been stressed out, interrupted. And part of the brain's healing process is developing new chemical pathways. The brain has an amazing ability. When certain pathways get shut down by trauma, the brain is working to create a new pathway to complete the thought or to feel the feeling or to have the motivation to motivate. All right? So what does that mean for us as Christians? Romans 12, chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind is the development of new chemical pathways. Number three, a positive outlook. It helps if you see the glass half full. It helps if you are an optimist. It helps if you learn to look at the positive side of life. Matthew 19, verse 26 says this, With God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. So the, resi the resilient individual sees adversity as temporary and limited in scope. It's not greater than God. My trauma, my stress, my PTSD, my loss, my grief is not greater than God, although it sure feels like it. Number four, maintaining your moral compass. <clears throat> the Lord said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. You must master it or it will master you. It's very important when soldiers are recovering from combat trauma that you maintain your moral compass. And don't allow yourself to stray because, well, I have PTSD. I have the excuse. I can drink as much as I want, and I can even become an alcoholic because that pain is not as great as my PTSD. I can have an affair, or I can cheat, or I can have as many sexual relationships or encounters as I want because the pain of that doesn't hold a candle to the pain of my PTSD. 
Again, remember, some people elevate their PTSD to the place higher than God. It's greater than anything else. And so everything is done to, to stay away from it and dealing with it and work around the edges, which includes these high-risk behaviors. So maintain your moral compass, very important. Number five, I love this one, social support. What's a great institution providing social support for soldiers? The church, the family. Unfortunately, those are the two institutions that hurt people the most. Isn't that sad? The family and the church. But if we can redeem that and be families of love and support and be communities of faith that love and support and are like hospitals for the soul, that's very important work that we can reclaim and live out to the glory of God. Social support, uh, very important for recovery. And then number six, the last one, cognitive flexibility. What is that? The ability to reframe and recontextualize your experience. Let me tell you a little story from the Bible, Genesis chapter 50, about a guy named Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? Joseph was the youngest of all of his brothers, and they were so jealous of him. Because Joseph had dreams when he was a little boy of being greater than his brothers. So his brothers hated him. They were jealous of him. And what did they do? They sold him into slavery. And they lied to their father, Jacob. And they said, Joseph, your youngest son, has been killed by a wild animal. Look, here's his coat of many colors. It's covered with blood. Look how the bad thing that's happened. They sold him into slavery, though, because the oldest brother said, let's not kill him. We don't want his blood on our hands. Let's sell him into slavery. So they sold him to a caravan that took him to Egypt. And in Egypt, he went into prison. He was Potiphar's slave at first. He was accused of sexually assaulting Potiphar's wife and went to jail, which he didn't do and he didn't deserve. So his sufferings continued. And in jail, he asked the baker and the butler to remember him when he interpreted their dreams. And did they remember him? No, they forgot him. So his sufferings continued. And finally, one day, when when the nation of Egypt was in crisis, they decided we need some wisdom. There's this guy in the jail named Jacob. He interprets uh, Joseph, who interprets dreams. So they brought Joseph out of the prison. They brought him to the Pharaoh, and he correctly interpreted the dream and basically said, the nation of Egypt is headed for famine. You need to save up for seven years so that you have food for the next seven years to feed all your people. The Pharaoh listened. The nation was prosperous in saving up for the famine they were able to feed not only the nation of egypt but all the surrounding groups tribes nations that came to egypt for refuge including the israelites joseph's family and when they showed up joseph was in charge and joseph could have put all of his brothers to the sword for what they had done for him but what did he do he reframed it He reframed his sufferings. Here's what he said. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So if we can reframe our trauma, instead of becoming bitter about it, instead of hating our enemies, the Bible actually teaches us to pray for our enemies, which is the hardest thing for a soldier to do. But pray for them, forgive them, continue to be valiant in the fight in the defense of our nation and winning the nation's wars. But it's important that we keep our souls clean, keep our souls pure, keep our souls whole so that they're not fragmented, broken, and plagued with this trauma of 
combat stress. So that's cognitive flexibility. The good news this morning that I want to share with you is that, as Psalm 144 says, the God who trains your war, your hands for battle, the same God who does this saves you and rescues you from your enemies and can save you and rescue you from the trauma of the soul. That's our message this morning. That's a message that the Christian community has offered suffering persons through the ages, suffering persons through the ages, and we need to continue to reach out uh, to soldiers with this message. God is with you throughout the process of training, deploying, fighting, winning, succeeding, losing, grieving, redeploying, reintegrating, and living in peace again. So let faith, hope, and love grow strong in your lives. God bless you all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love and for your power, that you have the power to save us, even from the trauma of combat, even from the trauma of all the other ways that you can get PTSD. So we lift up our hearts to you this morning and look to you, Lord. We also thank you for loving, supportive families and spiritual communities. We thank you for this good country that loves its warriors and nurtures and cares for its wounded. We, uh, we pray for... Uh, Everyone who may be struggling this morning, I know there are some, that you will help us all to find you to be the God of light, the God of life, the God who overcomes and gives us victory over all things. And I make this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.